Hello, everybody. My name is TJ Hensley, and you're listening to Appalachian Firesides. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Appalachian Firesides podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us yet again for a new episode this week. I hope everybody has been doing well. Uh, I hope you all, if you're in uh, the Appalachian region of Kentucky as I am, I hope that you've been enjoying this amazing weather that we've been having. Uh, In my neck of the woods, it's been 70 and sunny every day this week, and so that's been amazing. I really am enjoying that, and I hope that's true for you all as well. I hope that you've had a chance to get outside and enjoy being in nature and enjoying this wonderful planet that we have and that we call home. Uh, but I hope that you all are just doing well and enjoying uh, this time as we go, like I said, through spring and into summer. I am officially finished with my third year of college, and so I'm uh, back at home in Harlan County. And I got to say, I cannot believe that it's gone by so quickly. Uh, if you had told me that it would be this, that it would feel this way rather a few years ago, I would not have believed you. But uh, I'm just kind of in a state of disbelief about that. To that end, uh, I have a bit of an announcement, a bit of an update for you all, uh, as I had posted on social media a couple days ago as I'm recording this, and that is that after the airing of this episode, which I plan to release on Monday the 16th, I think, yeah, the 16th, uh, I will be taking a bit of a break from the podcast. As I have mentioned to you all before on the podcast, and certainly if you know me personally, I've uh, probably told you about this as well, you probably know about it. Uh, I am scheduled to take the LSAT, the Law School Admissions or Aptitude Test. I still don't know what the acronym stands for, but I will be taking that exam uh, the second week of June. And so for the next couple of weeks, I'd like to just take some time and devote as much attention and focus as I can to preparing for that exam and and getting ready to take it. And so uh, to that end, I'll be taking a bit of a break from the podcast uh, over the next uh, little over a month is, is how long I expect to be away. And also to that end, I certainly desire your all's prayers, well wishes, good vibes, whatever you'd like to send my way as I study and prepare for and take this exam. Uh, I feel good about it. I think that it'll all work out the way it's supposed to, uh, God willing, but uh, whatever you'd like to send my way, I would greatly appreciate it. I will be back, absolutely be back for season three of the podcast. I think that I've had a chance to grow and uh, change up a bit of the things that I do on the podcast in a way that I think has been an improvement. I hope that you all agree. I uh, certainly have some more room to improve as well, but I, I think that I personally can tell a great difference between when I started a little under a year ago and now, and so I hope that you all have been enjoying it. Uh, thank you so much for uh, sticking out this ride with me, and uh, I just appreciate each and every one of you so much for listening in, for following on social media, every way that you contribute to the podcast, whether you listen or not. I just appreciate each and every one of you, and um, I want to thank you all. And like I said, I will be back for Season 3 of Appalachian Firesides. Uh, In about the middle of June is when I expect to start releasing episodes yet again, so you all stay tuned for that. And if you'd like, if you have some friends who are maybe interested in the podcast, uh, let them know that I'm on a bit of a break, so it'd be a good time to catch up and listen to the episodes that are out so far. But regardless of whether or not you do that, I just want to say again, thank you all so much for your support, for 
everything that you've done to contribute to this project. Uh, I had no idea when I started that it would be going this far and that I would be so invested in it right now, but I'm really enjoying it, and all of that is because of you guys and the contributions that you make to the podcast. So, again, I just want to say thank you. Now, joining me this week on the podcast is Dr. Ron Roach, who is the chair of the Appalachian Studies Department at East Tennessee State University, a great institution out in Tennessee, and I have a conversation with him about the beginnings of uh, Appalachian scholarship, studying Appalachia as an academic discipline, and we also discuss how the study of Appalachia can be used to uh, combat stereotypes and misconceptions about the region. We're looking to how we can work to revitalize the economies of communities in Appalachia that have been struggling for a long time. As you'll be able to hear through the interview, Dr. Roach is uh, absolute authority in this field. I really enjoyed uh, talking to him about these various concepts. I'm sure that he'll be joining us yet again when we get into more specific issues facing Appalachia. Uh, I'm sure that we'll be talking to him again uh, in future episodes. But for now, I hope that you all enjoy this conversation. Again, thank you all so much for the support that you've given uh, to me and to the podcast over the uh, past, I think, almost a year now that I've been doing this. So thank you all again so much. And without further delay, let's get into it. Okay, we're good to go. Um, Dr. Roach, again, uh, thank you so much for um, agreeing to this interview. I uh, really do appreciate you. Uh, I don't have any kind of um, a script or anything, so if you want to just go ahead and get started by introducing yourself, talking about your uh, work as a scholar of Appalachia, your specialty, anything you'd like, the, the floor is yours. Sure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and TJ, thanks for reaching out to me. Uh, I really have enjoyed learning about the project you're working on. It sounds great. And um, as far as myself, I'm the director of the Center of Excellence for Appalachian Studies and Services at East Tennessee State University. And I also serve as department chair of our Department of Appalachian Studies. And as far as I know, we're the only state university that devotes a full department to Appalachian Studies. So we're very fortunate to have the resources that, that we have here. Um, in our uh, Center of Excellence, we have uh, a nationally accredited museum, the Reese Museum, that focuses on regional history and art um, and beyond. <laughs> and uh, we have the Archives of Appalachia, which is one of the preeminent collections of materials related to the Appalachian region, including one of the most extensive uh, music collections around. And uh, we have the Regional Resources Institute, which is sort of our public outreach arm. Uh, we operate a summer governor school for the state of Tennessee on Tennessee uh, heritage and history and environment. And uh, we also operate a grant program for the Appalachian Regional Commission that is focused on the community engagement. It's called the Appalachian Teaching Project. Um, on the academic side of things uh, here, we have uh, probably the most well-known traditional music program, the Bluegrass Old Time and Roots Music Studies program, as well as one of the very few master's programs in Appalachian studies. Uh, as well as uh, graduate certificates in Appalachian studies and museum studies. So there's a lot sort of going on here that uh, I'm very privileged to work with, but uh, I, I'm able to do that because of the work that's gone on before. And uh, as you were asking in your email, uh, you were talking about wanting to look at the history of the development of Appalachian studies. And uh, uh, some of the most important steps took place right here at ETSU, as, as well as other places nearby like Appalachian State. 
And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. As far as how I got into this, uh, Appalachian Studies, by definition, is uh, an interdisciplinary uh, field. Yes. And so um, my academic background is in rhetoric and communication studies. I grew up in a family with strong uh, ties in the mountains. My mother grew up between Franklin and Cherokee, North Carolina. Uh, my On my father's side, I have family from the Martinsville, Virginia area. And then uh, my mother's father was from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. I grew up just south of Martinsville over on the eastern fringe of the foothills. Uh, a family with a lot of old time and bluegrass music right. uh, roots in the family. I grew up uh, surrounded by that. And in uh, 2002, I was able to um, get a teaching job at Young Harris College in the mountains of North Georgia, and, uh, which was not far from where my grandmother grew up in North Carolina. And it was at that time that I sort of uh, sort of got back to my roots, so to speak, and started, uh, you know, from my background, studying the rhetoric of Appalachia, right. you know, the, the writing and the speeches and uh, the literature about the region, and was very fortunate to be able to move into administration there and started their first center for Appalachian studies uh, there at Young Harris, and then in 2013, uh, moved to East Tennessee State. Uh, that's that's excellent. Uh, you're uh, your credentials, not just uh, from your uh, academic uh, experience, but your background as somebody who grew up in uh, that in the region and within a family that it sounds like emulated a lot of the qualities that we associate with it. Uh, that That's excellent. Uh, I was wondering if uh, I could go back to your, your mentioning how I, I gather that the field of Appalachian studies is a fairly recent innovation. And uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the groundwork uh, for that discipline was done there at your institution, ETSU. I actually toured ETSU. Uh, uh, Harlan County isn't that far away from from the main campus, and so uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's a beautiful campus, a great place to be, and I was actually quite attracted to the, the Appalachian Studies uh, uh, segment, but uh, if you could talk about some of that formative work that was done at ETSU, how it came about, and um, uh, things of that sort. Sure, and uh, by the way, in our Appalachian Teaching Project, since the very beginning, we've worked with Southeast Kentucky uh, Technical and Community College Excellent. Uh, in Harlan. They've been a great partner with us. Um, Appalachian Studies, if you want to look at it as, as, a, as a field of study, the Appalachian Studies Association as a scholarly organization, which also includes community members and artists and activists. It's always right. been a very, very broad organization, continues to this day. It, it formally began in 1978. So, you know, if you were look at it that way, is that sort of a, an, an official beginning point right. uh, as a field of study? Yeah, it is pretty recent, but actually go back several decades before that and you find the beginning of, of scholarship really focused on the region. Now, I could go back to about 1908 to point to sort of the first what I would consider uh, ethnographic study of the region, John C. Campbell. Uh, who was an educator and missionary from New England, and his wife, Olive Dane Campbell, um, traveled through east, uh, western North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, up into uh, Virginia and Kentucky, West Virginia, uh, studying the region and produced a uh, you know, well-known book, uh, The Southern Highlander and His Homeland, that was right. published after John's death. His wife actually finished it, and then she founded the John C. Campbell Folk School down in uh, Western North Carolina, which still continues. So that was really the first sort of scholarly look at the region. 
Um, obviously, you know, they were working under the constraints of what they had at that time. Right. But for, for that time period, it was a really good piece of scholarship that tried to look at the demographics of the region and the actual, you know, findings in the field. And famously, you know, they point out early in that book that they approached the region with a lot of preconceptions that just were not true. Right. And so, uh, but you have to really go forward into the 1950s before you find really the, the next wave of sort of serious scholarship starting. And it just so happens that that was the same time period that, especially in Europe, the idea of regional studies was beginning. Right. You know, the idea that you could bring scholars together from the different silos, the different disciplines, and uh, and study a region together to get a full picture of the region. Right. Um, so, you know, in the 30s and 40s, you had well-known writers starting to develop in the region like Thomas Wolfe and uh, James Still and, um, you know, Harriet Arnaud and then Wilma Dykeman. And in 1955, she published the book called The French Broad, which was sort of a comprehensive history, you know, a natural history as well as a social history of that river that runs, you know, through Asheville and over, over to Knoxville. Right. Um, and then Cratus Williams... Uh, an English professor at Appalachian State University in 1956 started one of the very first. Uh, we're not sure which was the exact first, but it was definitely one of the first curricula focused on the Appalachian region. And then in 1961, he wrote his well-known dissertation, The Southern Mountaineer in Fact and Fiction, which was hugely influential. Absolutely. And, you know, it was one of the first works that sort of tried to take a scholarly look at how residents of the mountain region have been depicted in literature. Right. And um, and, and really started that conversation about the impact of negative stereotyping on the region. And there was a lot happening at that time period. At, at the beginning of the 1960s, you know, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring that one of the most influential early works that start the modern conservation, later environmental movement. Uh, right. uh, Harry Caudill, the lawyer from Eastern Kentucky, published Night his Comes Night to the Comes Cumberland. to the Cumberlands, 1963. Um, and then in 64, LBJ proposes the War on Poverty legislation. And in 65, the Appalachian Regional Com Commission forms. Uh, but during the 60s, as, as sort of part of uh, a lot of those well-meaning efforts, you, you had a lot of misconceptions about the region too. Right. You had the development of what we, we might call, you know, the, the photographs that, that some might call poverty porn. Yes. Where, you know, highlighting the, the, the worst poverty in the region and, and sort of creating that conception that, you know, that was true of the entire region. You had a lot of subscription to the now largely discredited culture of poverty theory, right. you know, that tended to put a lot of the blame on the, residents of the region, which, by the way, hasn't gone away. It, it tends to pop up again. Right. It's uh, still lingering a bit. <laughs> um, and and so during the, the late 60s, you, you had more and more professors at institutions across the region who realized that, you know, this is a region that is very special. It has an incredibly rich and diverse history and culture, and we need to study this. So you had Helen Matthews Lewis at what is now UVA Wise, at that time Wise College in right. Western Virginia, Southwestern Virginia, who uh, is known today as the grandmother of Appalachian Studies, you know, and she looked at the curriculum at that, at that college, as, as she's told me many times, and 
was stunned to see that there, there's nothing in the curriculum about that place where those right. students were from. And so she started Appalachian studies classes there later pioneers, what today we call comparative mountain studies with her work in Wales and looking at the comparison and contrast between coal mining in Wales and, and yes. the mountains there and, and Appalachia. Um, at ETSU, you had a, a number of professors in the English department, Tom Burton, um, Ambrose Manning, Jack Higgs, who did a lot of field work, oral history collection, folklore studies. They actually started a folk festival here at ETSU in those days. And, you know, Gene Ritchie and some of the, you know, many of the big folk musicians performed here. Wow. But they also, their collection actually started, especially Tom Burton's collection, what is now the Archives of Appalachia. Right. Um, Higgs and Manning in 1975, they published the first anthology of Appalachian literature, Voices from the Hills. And, and, and they were all part of all of these names I'm mentioning and others from, you know, signature institutions across the region uh, came together to, as I said earlier, form the Appalachian Studies Association in 1978 and start the annual conference of you know, gathering of scholars and activists and artists and writers and publishers, which today, typically you'll have 800 to 1,000 people gathering uh, once a year at that conference that moves around the region. Uh, it was most recently held, thankfully, in person again after right. two years of, of a pandemic at West Virginia University. Uh, that's that's just excellent. Um, there's there's so many great topics that we could discuss. I, I wanted to go back to the point of how uh, at the advent of um, these scholars who um, were first taking a serious look at the region, who were admittedly um, going into this kind of work with preconceptions and, and stereotypes about uh, the the place and the people. Would you say that um, those stereotypes that they had back then, the, the stereotypes that were propagated back then, were pretty similar to the ones that most folks not from Appalachia would think of when they do think of Appalachia, or do you think it's changed? And, and where do you think that, uh, I, I guess a better way to phrase this would be, do you think that we've made progress in dispelling a lot of the misconceptions and the uh, generalizations, the caricature that surrounds not only the place, but the people who inhabit it? Right. Well, I think we have made progress. Yes, but not enough. Right. <laughs> I think, you know, the stereotypes are still out there. You know, in the days of the Campbells, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was uh, sometimes we talk about how Appalachia has periodically been, quote unquote, rediscovered right. <laughs> through, through history. And right. that was one of those times when people sort of rediscovered, hey, there's this place out there in the, in the mountains. Uh, and there were some in the late 19th century, uh, a, a group of writers that have sort of been called the local color movement that uh, there were travel writings and other pieces about the region that really stressed uh, and, and exaggerated uh, the, the fact that these people were other, you right. know, th they were ignorant, they were backward. And sometimes people used it for fundraising efforts. You know, President Frost of uh, Berea College, for example, published a famous article about, you know, Appalachians sort of being stuck in time, like they're, they're still in the colonial period, right. lost in time. Uh, and so you had, I think, a more extreme view at that time of just how uh, dangerous and, and backward uh, people were in the region. And it was based on, on ignorance. 
but then you know fast forward to the early 70s and you have a film like deliverance that is right exactly of, you know yeah tapping into that same sort of thing and, and it's become a, a trope of horror films very much so uh you know the the wrong turn series for example that you know there's this, this dangerous people uh living in in these isolated places which by the way appalachia was never completely isolated yes right. there were parts of it that were harder to get to but you know people had access to railroads and communication and newspapers and right. later radio um so yeah the short answer is i think we have made progress but they're they're still out there i mean i see see it all the time as i'm sure you do depictions in popular media even uh publications in you know major magazines from time to time or newspapers will perpetuate some of these misconceptions about the region and so from the beginning, Appalachian studies, at least one of the things we've tried to do is to present an accurate picture of the region right? Um, and try to correct some of those misconceptions that are out there. Because, you know, there's a whole field of study in psychology on stereotyping, which it, it happens everywhere, you know, in every culture, but it has negative ramifications. For example, there's an emerging uh, research in the area of healthcare that shows how stereotypes can have a severe impact on healthcare in terms right. of communication, in terms of whether people seek treatment um, or follow through on treatment once they receive it. So it does have real world, you know, impact. Um, and, you know, many of us from the region can certainly, you know, we have our own anecdotes of how the individual bias right. may have affected us as we've traveled outside the region or gone to school outside the region. Um, so, yeah, there, there's still a lot of work to be done. And, you know, in terms of socioeconomic indicators, uh, since the founding of the Appalachian Regional Commission in 1965, we've made a lot of progress in addressing poverty and addressing, um, you know, health disparities and right. addressing educational disparities. We've made much progress, but we still, as a region, run behind the rest of the nation right. on many of those indicators. And in... in in uh, especially some of the, you know, the heart of the coal mining counties in eastern Kentucky and in West Virginia, especially, those are the areas where the biggest disparities exist. Very much so. Uh, economically uh, and, and in health. And, and so that's no accident. And uh, so there, there's much work to be done. You know, in 2015, it was the 50th anniversary of the ARC. Right. And there was a lot of, of writing about this, a lot of coverage in the national media about all the progress that had been made. But uh, those of us in the region and in the ARC were quick to point out, yes, lots of progress, but still lots of work to be done. Right. And and that was something that uh, was evident from, uh, you know, very soon, even after the, the founding of the ARC and the launching of the War on Poverty, um, which uh, commenced in, in 1964. I think it was from Inez, Kentucky, that Johnson went there and, and officially declared it. But then, you know, just four years later, you have um, Robert Kennedy touring through uh, Eastern Kentucky. And he also noted that even though there had been some progress made, that there was still much to be done. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right that that's the case uh, right now as well. And I, I wonder, what do you think, um, in your own personal estimation, would be uh, a way that more progress could be made in the here and now. I know that there's been a lot of discussions about, um, you know, in the political sphere about reinvesting in infrastructure, not just in terms of 
roadways and and things like that, but replacing uh, or replacing lead pipes, but even broadband uh, and other investments in not only physical but human infrastructure that can perhaps attract new businesses to the area or even just direct investing in um, different programs to help really address those disparities, which, as you pointed out, very much so are still there, especially in uh, coal mining communities and communities that formerly did rely heavily on that uh, on that as a, as a resource. So, but in your estimation, what do you think is the most, uh, what do you think could be done right now to um, make further progress? Well, you, you touched on some important points, I think. And, you know, one thing we stress in our program here is, is a broad approach to community development. Um, the, the approach called asset-based community development in which you engage with a community by first listening right. and respecting that yes. community and, and then helping that community realize and, and catalog the assets that they have. And there are tremendous assets in the Appalachian region. Absolutely. Uh, both natural assets, which are obvious, but also human assets. And, uh, you know, the, the people of the region, uh, as people in, you know, rural and mountain regions around the world have a history of resilience, you right. know, facing tremendous challenges, but being resilient and bounding back. And so there are tremendous resources there to pull from. But then also helping communities identify the whole range of assets that can help them uh, both from within their community, but also the assets from outside, whether that be private investment or regional um, development, like in partnership with the Appalachian Regional Commission and local development districts, right. uh, state uh, initiatives and, and federal as well. Uh, it's going to take all of us, you know, to right. revitalize and re-energize and to, to move on as you know, all the indications are, and it has been happening for years, is the decline of the coal-based economy in our right. region. And but but where do we go from here? And how do we help communities? Uh, which is the whole point of uh, the Appalachian Regional Commission Power Grant series that you may be familiar with. It, those are specifically targeted towards communities that have had a, a coal-based economy, and finding. Uh, you know, a more diverse way and sustainable way for our communities moving forward. And there are a lot of encouraging signs out there. Broadband is essential. As you mentioned, our region runs behind the rest of the country right. on broadband access in rural areas. So we've got to get that in place um, so that we have access to, you know, the, the in increasing ability to work remotely is a good thing. And Which was COVID very, has accelerated that, right? Absolutely. Laid, laid that bare very much so. So uh, the other piece of this, too, and I'm encouraged, I, I mentioned we work with the Appalachian Regional Commission, and in the last number of years, the ARC has, in, in a big way, gotten into the conversation about health and wellness in the region. Right. And, and in the past, ARC was more narrowly focused on economic development, but, you know, they fully recognize now and is fully written into their strategic plan that, you know, health and wellness is vital for uh, for workers, right? right if you want to have a uh, developing economy. And so the opioid crisis, for example, is one where universities, governments, corporations, and communities are all trying to come together to address what is continues to be a severe crisis in right. the region. And again, on the negative side, COVID accelerated that. Yes. Um, in terms of, of people in despair, and uh, and alone, and and so you had the incredible spike in in suicides and uh, substance related 
uh, deaths, uh, not just in Appalachia, but other places as well. So, so I think, you know, we have a broad range of challenges that we still face, but I think we need a broad range of approaches to it. Uh, I am encouraged that communities across the region are more open than in the past. You know, right. in the past, the old economic development model, it was based on more of a, you know, uh, an industrial uh, steel based uh, what um, <laughs> Helen Lewis used to call the steel ceiling. Right. Where, you know, you try to recruit the big employer, the big factory, and, and then you're set. But that model has played out in recent decades in the region, as we've seen uh, the decline of industry and, and that sort of model. But the new model is a more di- diversified economy, utilizing technology, uh, recognizing the draw the region has for people who want um perhaps to get out of a more urban fast pace and right. live, live in a place where they have a better quality of life, uh, more connection with, with the land and nature. Yes. Good place to raise families, but they can still, you know, work remotely. Um, so we're seeing, you know, a lot of people come to the region for that. Yeah. I think there was, uh, I was reading about, um, I don't know if it was the whole state, but it was some place in West Virginia that was offering a certain amount of money to come there and to work remotely. And they would, you know, it, it was quite a big stipend to, to set up a, a new life there. And so uh, I'm as well um, encouraged by, by approaches like that. And I think you're absolutely right that it's going to have to be, there, there's no one silver bullet that will solve all of the issues. And uh, I think that, as you said, that how that approach, the multifaceted approach is being more ingrained into organizations like the ARC into different governments and different other entities and actors, uh, I, I think that that gives cause for for optimism. And uh, one particular part of this that I'm, I'm curious to get your your thoughts on, um, w- when you look back at the history of Appalachia and you know, other places as well, a, a very big part of that has been um, uh, the labor movement in Appalachia, mm-hmm. uh, especially during the, the 1930s, uh, not only in West Virginia, but in Kentucky as well. Uh, and as we go forward, you know, as um, over the past few uh, decades, I think uh, unionization uh, has uh, steadily decreased in the country. And I'm wondering if um, we're seeing a bit, I, I would think, and I think most folks would too, we're seeing a bit of a revitalization of that in different sectors, whether it be Starbucks, Amazon, but uh, you know, certainly probably lower profile cases as well. Do you think that a revitalized uh, uh, labor-oriented movement in Appalachia as new industries come in um, that aren't as uh, uh, totalitarian, I'll say, as the, the companies were back in the 1920s mm-hmm. and 30s. Uh, do you think that a revitalized labor movement in Appalachia could be uh, an important um, part of these different kinds of solutions as a way of empowering the folks who live there and work there in a way that they really feel the connection to the, the, the value that they have as workers and as, as parts of uh, those communities that have been um, declining recently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, workers' rights, as you alluded to, have have been so important, you know, for many years in the region. And, right. and there, are, there are a lot of, you know, high profile uh, battles, literal battles yeah, in, the, literally. in the past over this. Right. Right. And so, yeah, it's very important. I think that in looking at today's landscape, just like the old industrial model has changed, I think today's labor movement in the region might not look the same as it did, you know, right, 50, right. 60, 75 years ago. I think there has to be some adaptation to the modern labor market 
and really the forces of globalization, which right. have, have reached into, you know, every community. It's a, it's a much smaller world. You know, we talk to our students about thinking globally, but act lo- locally, right? Right. Um, and, and you mentioned even a comp- company like uh, Starbucks, which is known for being very progressive, but, you know, they're, they're right now having a real back and forth with their workers over very much so. unionization and what it looks like. So I think, I think that's what we're going to see. Um, in, in some way, history repeats itself, you know, in, in studying in, in history of the archives here in the early 1900s, we have a huge collection of labor records and in seeing the sort of the pitch that companies were making in that time period to northern industrialists saying, hey, come to East Tennessee, come to the southern Appalachians. Uh, one of their pitches was, you know, we have we have very few unions here. Right. And, and that's the pitch that's happening today. Right. In, in terms of the, the scramble to locate you know, sometimes large automakers, for example, right. Volkswagen to Tennessee and so forth, you, you see the same sort of back and forth. Um, but the global economy has certainly highlighted, too, that, uh, you know, workers are being taken advantage of around the world. Right. And, um, and, and we have to, to work hard to make sure that, you know, not only are we providing a way forward for the community, but that we are at the same time protecting the, protecting the health and, and working conditions of, uh, of those who are making it happen, you know, the workers. Absolutely. I think that um, you're, you're very much right about that. Um, another, another point that I'd be uh, interested to revisit would be, um, you mentioned uh, how a lot of the stereotypes and um, misconceptions that were uh, apparent at the beginning, at the onset of Appalachian scholarship are still kind of lingering. And one of those would be uh, the, the culture of poverty. And um, I guess the best way to put this would be, uh, what do you think the best thing, the, the best way that folks from Appalachia who are um, encountering these misconceptions and stereotypes, whether it be for the first time or whether it's something that they've dealt with over their lives, but have uh, kind of gotten tired of hearing and would like to do their part in setting the record straight, what do you think is the best course of action? And um, this would probably be um, varied depending on um, on the person and on the, the case, but uh, what are some ways rather that people in Appalachia could do their part in responding to and correcting uh, these stereotypes that have lingered for a long time and are uh, continuing to reemerge uh, today? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, continuing to speak out and to, you know, when an egregious <laughs> uh, example occurs, you know, a major article or editorial or something that as we see all the time, you know, that right. politicians and other figures make these outlandish comments about the region that that the region responds to it, um, you know, that, and, and point people to to some, you know, really accurate uh, writings about the region. And there's right. some great documentary films out there. Uh, you, you have the book Appalachian Reckoning, which is a collection of essays responding to J.D. Vance's. It's a very good book. book. Who, yeah. uh, who's in the news right now running. Yeah. For yeah. Um, you know, and uh, the book Ramp Hollow, for example, um, uh, I think a great read. Uh, it's a little older now, but still certainly valid. Uh, Jeff Biggers, The United States of Appalachia is a great book right. that highlights you know, some of the things you may not know about Appalachia, some of what he calls the vanguard moments uh, of of great developments that took place. I mean, how many people know the father of blues music, WC Handy is from, you know, the mountains of the Hills of Alabama. Right. Um, and just, just educating people and, um, and calling them on it, 
You know, it, it has sort of been as as we become more aware of stereotypes and prejudices, um, our culture has gotten better, you know, about uh, trying to to avoid that sort of thing. But in terms of the hillbilly stereotype, um, not so much. <laughs> it right. still seems to sort of be accepted and, and we don't need to accept it. We need to uh, let people know that um, just because you speak with a drawl, uh, Southern Appalachian drawl, you know, that doesn't, that's not a negative thing. That's, right. uh, it, it's an incredibly rich region with great history, great culture. It's given a lot to the world uh, and, and continues to have a lot to offer. Absolutely. I, I think that uh, I couldn't have uh, said that any better myself. Uh, Dr. Roach, is there anything that you would like to say uh, in closing? Again, I appreciate you so much. This has been a great conversation. I'd love to have you on again uh, sometime to talk about different aspects of Appalachian culture and, and the scholarship surrounding it. But anything you'd like to say to close out? Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm encouraged as as a teacher in Appalachian studies to see, uh, you know, the next generation like yourself coming along because we have had sort of a changing of the guard in Appalachian studies. I mentioned some of the great figures of the past, you know, who are now retired. And, uh, you know, we've had another wave of retirements in recent years of sort of that, that second generation. And so, you know, to, to, to see the work you're doing, to see the work that other great scholars are doing who are coming into the field, it's very encouraging, you know, and, and you have technology tools that we didn't have in the past. You have the ability to get the message out Right. To a wider audience than ever before. Uh, you know, for decades, we published a print magazine here through our center and we just transitioned to a digital magazine called Appalachian Places last year. And it's just phenomenal how many more people can access that content. Right. So, yeah, I do have you know, great hope for the future uh, as we work together to, you know, protect the environment of our region. Yes. And to, you know, celebrate the the heritage uh, of our region and to, to move ahead together. Very much so. Um, Dr. Roach, thank you again so much for, for this interview. I, this has been a, a great conversation. I very much enjoyed it. Um, and like I said, I, I look forward to maybe having you on again uh, sometime. You're welcome at any time you'd like, and uh, we appreciate you. Thank you, TJ. And thanks for what you're doing. And we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. You have a good one. Well, I hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation that I had with Dr. Roach. Uh, As you can tell, he's certainly an authority in the field of uh, Appalachian studies. And like I said, I'm sure that he'll be joining us again for a future episode when we discuss uh, issues surrounding Appalachia. Look forward to having him on again. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I'll be stepping away for a period of time now as I prepare for the LSAT. And as I said, I greatly appreciate and desire your all's prayers, um, well wishes, good thoughts, good vibes, whatever you'd like to send my way as I prepare for that exam. I greatly appreciate it. And I also appreciate you all and the support and the encouragement that you've given me, uh, whether you know me personally and have talked to me about the podcast, whether you've reached out through social media, or just by listening in, I appreciate each and every one of you so much. I can't even begin to describe and articulate how much you all mean to me. And uh, you all are the reason that this keeps going. Uh, I never thought that when I started, this would turn into a project like this that I enjoyed uh, as much as I do right now. But this has just been a wonderful opportunity for me to tell you all about this place that I love, uh, Appalachia, and how I think that we can work to make it better for everybody. 
And like I said, I will be back in a little over a month with some new content for you guys. I'm really excited. I've got a lot of uh, exciting interviews planned and other things, uh, especially with our sites to see and places to be in Appalachia series. So be on the lookout for that new content. And uh, don't forget to follow the podcast on social media. It's at App Firesides with two Ps on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tell your friends about the podcast uh, if you'd like. And like I said, I'll be back in a little over a month. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.